Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thanks for being here. Uh, Joseph is on vacation this week, and uh, so I'm honored to, uh, to teach in this place, and I just thank you so much uh, for showing up, even though you may have known that I was doing that. Uh, and that's what grace is all about, right? So Joseph's on vacation, and you're stuck with me, and so basically uh, it stinks to be you, and, uh, but the good news is you know how April feels all the time. Uh, she's not on vacation this week, and she's stuck with me, so you guys at least can sympathize a little bit about that. We're wrapping up our American Idol series uh, this week, and today we're talking about a success, and I'd like you to finish this line for me. Uh, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. That's right. Uh, there are a few other options of this. Um, if at first you don't succeed, find out if the loser gets anything. That's, that's a good one. Um, also, remove all evidence that you ever tried. Some of us do that. And this is my favorite. If at first you don't succeed, then skydiving is not for you, okay? And then if we just decide to not try anymore, this can be our attitude. This, the father's telling the son, hey, success isn't as rewarding as it seems. Caesar was the greatest emperor who ever lived, and they named a salad after him. So success can seem elusive, right? Especially when it comes to our culture's uh, view of success. And we've talked about this quote from Kyle Eidelman several times. Uh, an idol is something we sacrifice for and something that we pursue. And I looked on Amazon. There are over 80,000 books on the subject of success. So that tells me that that is definitely something that we pursue and that we sacrifice for. Now, success isn't a bad thing. Uh, but it's, it's become about getting more and acquiring more. Uh, more money, more power, uh, more fame, and we call it the American dream. And we can get caught up in sacrificing so much just trying to obtain it. And so we work longer hours, we neglect our families, we compromise on what God says so we can impress other people, we compare what we have to what other people have and compare their success to our success. And sometimes even our identity relies on what we have and how much success we have. And listen, the church is not immune to this, okay? We even do this at church. Instead of being faithful to what God's called us to do, sometimes we measure success based on what the church down the road is doing, what kind of attendance they have, what programs they have, all those sorts of things. And we just we let it consume us. And sometimes it can become an idol, if we're really honest about it. So today we're going to talk about how Americans and God don't view success the same way. So let's take the next few minutes and examine uh, what is success to God and how do we get there. And this verse kind of sets us up for that. Romans 12, 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then you'll learn to know what God's will is for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And I love this verse because it applies to so much of our skewed thinking about just different things. So what if this morning we let God transform or change the way that we think about success? I think we could walk away from here beginning to learn what God's will is for us and put success in the right perspective. So today we're going to look at a couple of passages that show people who've had success in God's eyes. 
The first one is in the Gospel of Mark, and there's a story about a widow who did something that really impressed Jesus. This is Mark 12, 41 through 44. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this widow. We don't know how long she'd been a widow. We don't know what kind of estate her husband had or whether she even had access to her husband's estate. Many widows at this time didn't even have access to the money their husbands had had. But I don't think this was her first time giving. I think that over time she had been given faithfully. And when it came down to her last two coins, she knew that she could trust God with them. And so she gave them. So what impressed Jesus or made this widow successful in his eyes wasn't that she gave two coins. It was that she entrusted them and herself to God. And that's what God wants from you. That's what God wants from me. It's for us to trust him, for us to have a relationship with him, and not just follow the rules or not just go through the motions and go through the rituals. So the big idea today is success in God's eyes comes through faith and obedience. So what's faith? Well, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. So in other words, faith is visualizing the future in the present. You, think it's, you believe it's possible in advance, sometimes long before it will ever be possible. So that's just a simple definition of faith. So we're going to look at today, how do we have a successful faith-filled life? Well, the first way, I think, is to believe even when you don't see. Now, as human beings, we often say, I'll believe it when I see it, right? But that's not how God does it. See, in God's economy, sometimes you have to believe it in order to see it. And we see this in the real world, too. Artists, authors, scientists, researchers, architects, they often do this. They often believe what they're doing before they see it. And those things require faith of some sort. Michelangelo, who you see here, was one of the greatest artists of all time, if not the greatest artist of all time. You know him for the Sistine Chapel. But he was primarily known as a sculptor. He created over 40 sculptures. And this is what he said. The sculpture's already complete within the marble. Before I ever start my work, it's already there. I just have to chisel away what doesn't belong. See, he, he believed it even though he didn't see it. He knew it was there. He just needed to, get rid, needed to get rid of all the excess. Our second point is to obey even when you don't understand. So let's look at an example from Hebrews 11, which is kind of uh, God's hall of fame of faith. There are a lot, of, a lot of blurbs, a lot of quick stories in here uh, of many of the great men and women in the Bible who were who a success in God's eyes because of their faith. And the example we're going to look at is a man named Noah. This is what Hebrews eleven seven says. It was by faith that Noah built an ark to save his family from the flood. 
he obeyed God who warned him about something that had never happened before. See, faith is obeying even when I don't understand the plan. And I want you to think about Noah. And think about the doubts and questions he must have had. Can you imagine if God came to you one day and he said, Hey, I'm going to wipe out the entire planet. Everybody on the earth is going to be gone. And I'm going to start over with you. Well, at first I'm kind of grateful, right? Hey, you're not destroying me. That's kind of nice. But wait a second. You're, you're starting over with me? I mean, you have that much faith in me that you're going to start over? Just think of the doubts he must have had. And it also never flooded. So when God said it was going to do that, I imagine he had some questions about that. The first one is, what's a flood, right? So God said, I wanted you to build this boat in the middle of the desert, not near an ocean, and I'm going to bring the water to you. Again, lots of doubts, lots of questions. But Noah obeyed even when it didn't make sense. The truth is, is that faith always involves risk. See, we tend to want a guarantee of success before we step out in faith and before we obey God. We don't want to fail, and we definitely don't want to risk much. I think ultimately we just we want to be safe. We want to live our safe, uninterrupted, risk-free lives, die in our sleep, and we expect God to go, well done. You didn't do anything I asked you to do. So we want to kind of hunker down. We want to get like in our little safe little communities. We want to home college our kids so they don't have to deal with any temptations, right? And we just want to live these safe, this safe life. But that doesn't require any faith, and God doesn't promise that. We've looked at this verse several times during this series too. John 16, Jesus says, Here on earth you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And then he tells his disciples this. And Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. That doesn't sound very safe to me. When Jesus took up his cross, he was going to one place. He was going to die. You don't take up your cross to walk around the neighborhood. You don't take up your cross to live in your little community and be safe. When you take up your cross and deny yourself and follow Jesus, you're taking a risk. So is being safe about me or is it about God's glory? And am I really surrendered to God or do I want God to surrender to me? And what about this? What if what brings the most glory to God is not safe at all? On Friday, seven of us are going to Salt Lake City, and I've challenged our team to pray that God be glorified the most, whatever that means. Now, do I want to come back? Absolutely. I have boys here that are staying here. I have this great church. I have awesome friends. I want to come back. I don't have a death wish, okay? And I'm not asking people in our team to have a death wish. What I'm asking, though, is that we not pray for our comfort over God's glory. That no matter what happens, that we look at it in the lens of we want God to be glorified the most through that circumstance. 
whether it's losing luggage, whether it's having three kids show up for vacation Bible school, whether it's have a thousand kids show up for vacation Bible school, which is equally as scary. But we want God to be glorified the most, whatever that means. This is Pastor Praveen in India. Uh, he's also called Bobby. Um, I've had the opportunity to meet Bobby, and this guy is a remarkable, remarkable man. He works, um, he's been a partner to an organization that's located right here in Greer called Water for Life. And if you know anything about Water for Life, they go into villages uh, around the world, but primarily in India, and dig water wells uh, for people. They, these people drink out of rivers, nasty, nasty water. So they go in, dig a well, or provide a new well, and share the gospel. And this is risky for Bobby in itself because Christianity isn't exactly welcomed uh, in India. But a few years ago, he became aware of people who were trafficking young children and enslaving them in rock quarries. So what would happen in a lot of these communities is you might owe money to somebody and you can't pay them because you're poor. So they would take your child as payment. And I'm not talking about teenagers necessarily. I'm talking about little kids. He was seeing children four, five, six, seven years old being enslaved in these rock quarries. And when he saw that, he knew that he couldn't just stand by and do nothing. So he tried some negotiating with some of these quarry owners. Sometimes that worked. Sometimes it didn't. And sometimes he would risk his life and try to rescue these kids. He'd go in at night and rescue as many as he could. And at first, he just started taking them into his home and taking them into the church that he pastored. And he started finding other pastors to work with. And can you take some of these kids and feed them and share with the gospel with them? Then he told Water of Life what he was doing. And they felt like they had to do something as well, even though they're not, they're not a child help organization. They dig water wells. But they felt like they couldn't just stand by and not do anything either. So they started helping. And they eventually started a separate nonprofit to help these kids. And because of Bobby and his faithfulness and his obedience, there's now a network of 7,000 pastors in India who've rescued 22,000 children. And they try to reunite these kids with their families as best they can. But sometimes these, these families have moved Sometimes they don't want them back because they fear retaliation from whoever took them. They feel like they'll just come and take them again or they'll kill the whole family. In fact, just this week, uh, a young girl was reunited with her family seven years after she was taken, which is awesome. They've also raised enough funds uh, through their program and here in the States, and there's a church locally that's really helped them a lot to build this building, this campus, and it houses, feeds, and educates over 1,300 kids today, and they have plans to increase that by 2,000 uh, to 2,000 really soon. Now, Bobby has a bounty on his head from some of these quarry owners, but also some of them have accepted Christ as a result of his work. Now, he didn't understand. He definitely didn't feel prepared to do what God had asked him to do, but he moved anyway. Maybe God isn't asking you or me to rescue kids uh, in India, but he still commands us. There's still over a thousand commands in the Bible. 
And the principle's still the same, to obey even when we don't understand. And honestly, many of those commands, they don't make a whole lot of sense. They can seem unreasonable to our minds. Every time God tells you to do something, it's a test. Am I going to do it my way or am I going to do it God's way? For instance, God says when people hurt you and abuse you and misuse you, you're supposed to forgive them. Now, that doesn't sound natural. Not to me. I don't know about you. But if somebody misuses me and abuses me and hurts me or my family, the natural thing to do is to get even, to get mad, to get Blue Ridge mad. You know what I'm talking about? But the truth is that when I don't forgive, I get filled with resentment and bitterness and it steals my joy. And on the surface, God's advice doesn't seem right. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel right. But it is right because God says to do it. And it works. Obeying God, even when I don't understand, it pleases God. It's a step to success. The third thing is to give even when you don't have. Giving and faith go together. And God often uses finances to test our faith. And we saw that in the case of the widow in our story when she gave even when she didn't have. She, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And she believed this truth that Paul later wrote. Philippians 4.19, God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches. The question isn't can God do it, but do you really believe that he can do it? And will you put your money where your mouth is? See, there are two ways to give. We can give by fact or we can give by faith. When I give by fact, I look at my bank account and my checkbook and I figure out how much I have and I figure out how much I can afford and I gather the facts. And then I give a reasonable amount based on what I can afford. Sounds reasonable. But that doesn't require any faith at all. An atheist can do that. And I think some of these rich people in their story did that. The other way to give is to give by faith. Faith giving is when you pray and you ask God, what do you want me to give? How much do you want me to trust you this time? It's given by faith, and I think that's the kind of giving that God blesses. And I believe many of you give by faith. I don't know what anybody gives. I don't even know who gives. And honestly, I don't want to know. But I see evidence of giving by faith. Anytime we've asked or told you about an opportunity that's available to help beyond the offering, whether it's sending kids to camp, whether it's helping with a, the mission trip, whether it's future development, or um, anything else that we've asked, you've stepped up. And the normal offering usually doesn't suffer as a result. So you're not robbing Peter to pay Paul, so, so to speak. You're not saying, oh, well, I just won't give to this, and I'll give to this instead. I think many of you ask God what you should give, and then you do it. You obey. A great example is last week. Now, last week was a fifth Sunday, and we're in the summer. And anybody in church world will tell you that's probably going to be an off week. It's a fifth Sunday. It's the summer. Offering's going to be down. 
Let me tell you something. That doesn't apply to Freedom Fellowship. Because what happened was, is the offering wasn't down. In fact, it was, it was really good from what I understand. And not only that, you gave an incredible amount for the mission trip. We raised $3,918 for the mission trip. And that's fantastic. Can I get a witness? Right? Now that's awesome. And we're going we're gonna to use that money on the mission trip. And our hope is, is when we come back, and our plan is we're going to have money to give to that church that we're helping that is already in our budget. We already give them money per month, but we want to bless them even more and give them some more money. We're not looking to hold on to this money. We're going we're gonna to bless that church with it. See, we don't give because God needs it or the church needs it. We give because we need it. And I need to express God to God two things with my giving. I need to express my gratitude for all that he's blessed me with, and I need to express my dependence on him. I heard a Christian businessman one time say, the best time to give is when you're in need, which, again, doesn't seem reasonable or make sense. But his point was is that anybody can give out of their abundance, just like those guys in Jesus' day. But it takes real faith to give out of need. So give even when you don't have. The fourth way is to persist even when you don't feel like it. Let's go back to our story of Noah. Many scholars believe that it took Noah over 100 years to build the ark. Now you talk about persistence. Here's a guy building a gigantic boat in the middle of the desert with all... God hasn't destroyed humanity yet, okay? So imagine the ridicule that he's getting, the laughing that's coming, the can you believe what Noah's doing, all the whispers, the doubts in his head, the many, many days that I imagine that he got up and just said, I just don't really feel like going through that today. And our culture's a lot of the same way. We say to do everything based on your feelings. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, don't do it. Live by your emotions. And many times I believe that's why people jump in and out of marriages. That's why we overspend to the point of filing bankruptcy. That's why people church hop. That's why there are 400 restaurants on Wade Hampton Boulevard. Because we can't make up our mind and because we want to live based on whatever we feel at the moment. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. But we shouldn't be living by our hearts. Remember, we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Mature people live by their commitments, not by their emotions. See, emotions come and go. And we need to choose to do things and develop habits that develop our spiritual lives, whether we feel like it or not. We need to pray when we don't feel like it. We need to read the Bible when we don't feel like it. We should serve others, practice patience, speak the truth in love, all even when we don't feel like it. Faith is being persistent. It's refusing to give up. It's doing the right thing even when you're tired, even when you're not in the mood, even when it might cost you some success in the world. So how do we develop persistence? Well, in Hebrews again, in our, our Hall of Fame of Faith, 1127, it says, By faith Moses left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was 
invisible. The key is, is to keep your eyes on God. That's what Moses did. And when you keep your eyes on God, it keeps you persistent. Number five is to trust even when you don't get. We have a tendency to to treat God like he's a vending machine. That we just think God will just automatically give us whatever we ask for and anything that we want. But that's just, it's just not true. The Bible says that faith is trusting even if I don't get what I ask for. Even if I don't get it. Here are two facts I know about prayer. One is God hears and answers every prayer that you pray. And number two is he doesn't always answer the way you want him to. I think God has four answers to prayer. I think he says yes, no, not yet, or I've got something better or different for you. And all four of those are equally valid answers. Faith is trusting God even when I don't get the answer I expected or I wanted. Living by faith doesn't exempt us from problems. Sometimes we pray for God to remove a problem, and he doesn't. He keeps it there and gives us the strength to go through it. It ends up fulfilling his plan, and you end up being stronger. The truth is is that God's more concerned with your character than your comfort. He doesn't take away all our problems, but we can live in victory looking from the other side. You remember this verse? Jesus said, here on earth you'll have many trials and sorrows, and the spoiler alert, take heart, I've overcome the world. See, the victory is won even if I don't see it on earth. That we can look at it from the side of the victory, that God, Jesus has already overcome the world. So no matter what you're going through, it's overcome. Jesus trumps it all. See, anybody can trust God when things are going great. Anybody can give when you've got extra money. And when that finish line is right there, man, I can persist because I know it's right there. And anybody can believe when something's sitting right there in front of them. But real faith is built in the valleys of life. And sometimes it's trusting God when I don't get it. When good things happen, it's easy to say God is God and God is good. Woohoo! It's awesome. But guess what? When things are bad, God is still God. And God is still good. There are stories upon stories of people like the widow and like Noah throughout the Bible. And I want you to keep in mind something. They weren't just looking for God's approval and to win God's approval. And we shouldn't either. They trusted him to have a better plan than they had. They lived in complete surrender to him through faith and obedience. Now, I know all of you read Jude this morning, so you probably already read this verse. That's a joke. Uh, Jude one twenty. it's not a book we read a whole lot, says, build your lives on the foundation of your faith. See, it's good to have dreams and goals, but we need to continually surrender those to God. 
God is going to ensure your success and mine in accordance with his plan and not with ours. Hear that again. God will ensure your success and mine in accordance with his plan and not our plan. So remain faithful to the process that he's laid out for us. So this morning, some of us need to reevaluate our view of success. We need to drop that American idol. We need to quit pursuing it. And we need to focus on God's success through faith and obedience. Somebody might be in a job in here and you're trusting the paycheck and you're trusting the power and you're not trusting the creator. Somebody in here might need to take a risk and do something that God has already been prompting you to do. And you're just, you're hunkered down, playing it safe. I'm just going to live this safe life and maybe God will forget about it. But maybe God's prompting you and you know that you should take that risk and step out in faith. And somebody might need to talk to somebody about that first step of faith, which is surrendering your life to Jesus. And you can do that at the end. I'll be right up here, up front. And I'd be happy to talk with you about that. See, most of us, if we're fortunate, we'll live an average of 70 to 80 years here on earth. And during this time, we're bombarded with the temporary. To make money, get stuff, be comfortable, live well, have fun. And in the middle of all that, I don't know about you, but I can get blinded to the eternal. But it's there. Both you and I will soon stand before God to give an account for our stewardship of our time, the resources, the gifts, and ultimately the gospel that he's entrusted to us. And when that day comes, I'm convinced that we won't wish that we had given more of ourselves to live in the American dream. We won't wish we had made more money, acquired more stuff, lived more comfortably, been more powerful, achieved more fame, or been more successful in the eyes of the world. Instead, I think we'll, be, we'll wish we had given more of ourselves in pursuing God and trusting his plan and sharing his good news and seeking the success that he offers. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we just we ask you to help us. Some of these things are really hard. But you've promised that you're with us. You've promised that you have overcome the world. So God, help us to take the steps necessary to live in faith and in obedience to you. To your word. Help us, God, to seek the success that you offer. Help us, God, to see people as you see them and to love people as you love them. In your name I pray.